One thing I love about following popular music is that every artist, whether they are pop, rock, metal, folk, blues, jazz, any combination of these, or any other genre known to man, has a story. In the music industry and in musical lore, the tales are never predetermined. Some artists like Taylor Swift, Kendrick Lamar, Adele, Drake, and the Foo Fighters enjoy critical and commercial success consistently throughout their entire careers. If a blip exists in their trajectory, it's often negligible and easily redeemable. These artists become undisputed top-tier icons. Other artists enjoy success from a breakthrough album with one or more hits and consequently experience stardom, influence, accolades, and the whole nine yards, only to never replicate that success or even approximate it again. These artists are usually, but not always, considered one-hit wonders. Such acts include Alanis Morissette, Vanessa Carlton, Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, Daniel Powder, Soft Cell, and Blind Melon, among others. But the artists with the most interesting stories, for me, tend to be those that achieved that iconic status. However, their success stalled upon lackluster reception to a particular album release. Despite the setback, these artists persevered and subsequently redeemed themselves with better-received follow-up records. Since many music fans such as myself tend to revere their favorite artists, they don't like to associate them with any negative moments, and thus pretend those underwhelming records don't exist. When this process completes, these become forgotten albums. I'm your host, Dove Brenner, and welcome to Hot Cakes from a 90s Stand, and today I will discuss the podcast's first forgotten album, One Hot Minute, released in 1995 by, well, we'll get to that in a second. I don't think I had too many hobbies as a six-year-old. I remember enjoying soccer, Pokemon, and drinking soda at birthday parties because my parents didn't allow it in the house. I also really liked music, and more specifically, I enjoyed music videos. A babysitter, probably prematurely, introduced me to MTV, providing the genesis of my music listening outside the few artists that my parents spoon-fed me. Six-year-old me existed in part of the years 1999 and 2000, so the artists featured on MTV then included the legendary boy bands NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, as well as other pop artists like Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Destiny's Child, B.B. Mac, Aaliyah, and Hanson. I also remember hip-hop artists such as DMX, Ja Rule, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, and um, Kid Rock. The rock bands, though, appealed the most to me. The standout bands included Blink-182, No Doubt, Vertical Horizon, Three Doors Down, Creed, Train, and whatever the name of that band is that sang that one song about that girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world. But in addition to all of those superhuman acts, a six-year-old me, one band stood head and shoulders above the rest. They were definitely older and created music that produced a unique feeling distinguishable from the other artists. I distinctly recall the tone of the guitar evoking pleasant emotions. Beyond the dope music, that band made the most creative videos I had seen up to that point. 
One video featured the band in a video game, which reminded me of my favorite video game, Tony Hawk Pro Skater on Nintendo 64. The other video that caught my attention presented the band playing their instruments on non-musical objects in front of a black and white background. Sometime, most likely in the year 2000, MTV featured a clip of one of their live performances. My excitement for the band disappeared when I saw them take the stage sporting mohawks and covered in tattoos. Obviously, the prejudice was silly, but coming from a Jewish family, my dad at the time did not think highly of tattoos, so I viewed tattoos in that light and opted to focus my interest on more perceived clean-cut acts. A year later, my interest changed as I traded watching TRL for Yankee Games and SportsCenter, and my personal life, whose details I won't bore you with, minimized the importance of MTV. So I basically only listened to music when I was in the car. My brother's taste always favored Top 40, and my mom preferred playing her Barbra Streisand CDs, so that's what I mainly heard. I didn't spend a lot of time driving with my dad throughout my elementary school days due to his work schedule, but I preferred his soundtrack as he tended to play the lighter side of rock from the 60s and 70s with artists such as the Beatles, Beach Boys, Eagles, Steve Miller Band, and Elton John. Music lacked importance beyond the casual listening at that time, really until the fall of 6th grade in 2004 when my mom gifted 11-year-old me Good Charlotte's The Young and the Hopeless, either for Hanukkah or probably just to get me to stop annoying her. Already impressed with two of their hits I heard on the radio a year or so before, I ended up falling in love with the emo classic, but didn't explore their discography further. Instead, I seeked out CDs from bands related to Good Charlotte that my older sister and her friends deemed cooler, like Blink-182 that I had already had an affinity for from my MTV watching days, and Green Day who were riding the wave of their smash hit American Idiot. These three pop-punk artists rekindled the interest in music that those videos sparked years earlier, so my radio listening with the fam became a more focused activity. Then one night, early in the summer of 2005, while pulling into the garage, the song on the radio delayed my desire to enter the house. I asked my mom if she could wait until the conclusion of the song before turning off the car. I requested that because, though I hadn't heard this tune before, I recognized the vocalist. I connected the vocals with the same group that mesmerized six-year-old me with their unique guitar tone and music videos. That same group that my nativity dismissed due to their alternative appearance. That same group that differed significantly in age and style from the rest of those 1999 to 2000 groups. The song, Under the Bridge. And that group, my favorite band of 17 years. The Red Hot Chili Peppers. If you ever get the chance, I highly recommend checking out the program Podcast 99. It's about the infamous music festival Woodstock 99. The Red Hot Chili Peppers headlined that festival, and one of the hosts of that podcast, Ryan Lichten, mentioned he thought the Chili Peppers were the perfect artist to headline the biggest festival of the 90s, since their massively successful albums, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which came out in 1991, and Californication, released in 1999, essentially bookended the decade. I completely agree, which is why I consider the Chili Peppers a 90s band despite several popular works of theirs released in other decades. I also think it's interesting that Lichten omitted mentioning the other studio album the band put out that decade, One Hot Minute. Maybe he didn't purposely leave out that album. Maybe he just forgot it. To understand the reasons this album has largely been forgotten, ignored, and dismissed, we must understand the album's predecessor, 
one of the godfathers of the 90s alt-rock explosion, the left bookend of the 90s, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. But, to understand that album, we must journey back to a tragic day in 1988, June 25th to be exact. The day the original Red Hot Chili Peppers guitarist, Hillel Slovak, died of a heroin overdose. Forget the effects of his death on the band's music. The other members of the band, Anthony Kiedis, Michael Balzeri, a.k.a. Flea, and Jack Irons had been friends with Slovak since childhood, so obviously his death devastated the, devastated the surviving members, spurring drastic choices from two of them. Vocalist Anthony Kiedis, who was dealing with his own addiction struggles, used his grief as motivation to get clean, entering a rehab facility. Whereas Jack Irons had the most severe response to the tragedy, opting to leave the Chili Peppers, basically stating he didn't want to be in a group where his friends were dying. Thus, the death of Slovak left the band without a guitarist and a drummer. The Chili Peppers quickly found temporary replacements with Dwayne McKnight, formerly of the funk collective Parliament Funkadelic, on guitar, and D.H. Poligro, who had drummed for the Dead Kennedys from 1981 up until when they disbanded in 1986. The new lineup only played a few shows before it became apparent that the relationship between the band and McKnight would not work out. So the band canned McKnight, although you can hear his work with the Peppers on the track Blues for Meister off their 1994 compilation album out in L.A. So for the second time in 1988, the band lacked a guitarist. That very same year, a good friend of the band, singer-songwriter Bob Forrest, and his band The Lonious Monster were also in the market for a guitar player. As McKnight's tenure with the Chili Peppers became precarious, Flea, the band's bassist, recommended auditioning for the Lonious Monster to his friend, a teenage guitarist named John Frusciante. Frusciante had already been a fan of the Chili Peppers for a number of years, but since the band hadn't officially fired McKnight yet, Flea didn't feel quite comfortable enough to audition him. However, he did have the presence of mind to contact his friend, Bob Forrest, and let him know that the Chili Peppers, quote, have dibs on him, and that he couldn't get mad if they ultimately snatched him. If you've ever heard John Frusciante play guitar, you can comfortably guess that he killed it at his audition for The Lonious Monster and was subsequently hired. At his very first rehearsal with The Lonious Monster, a non-member of that band attended named Anthony Kiedis. Again, if you've heard Frusciante play guitar, you can comfortably guess Kiedis' impression of his chops. Flea and Kiedis called Frusciante that evening to offer him the job, to which he enthusiastically accepted. Alas, the new lineup consisting of Flea, Kiedis, Frusciante, and Peligro formed and has remained steady ever since. That's a joke, of course. While Peligro assisted in the songwriting of several songs which made it onto the next record, Peligro's own substance abuse issues resulted in his dismissal from the band. Subsequently, the Chili Peppers auditioned over 30 drummers, but didn't find a good fit until one of the final auditioners, the physically imposing Detroit-based Chad Smith. Although impressed with Smith's craft, his appearance that day put off Kiedis and Flea. Smith wore a bandana on the top of his very long hair, which came off to them as goofy and a style perhaps better suited for a hair metal band. But with the encouragement of their manager, the band anointed Smith as the new drummer under the condition that he shave his head. Smith showed up to his first rehearsal with his hair untouched, garnering the respect of Kiedis, who thought his refusal gave Smith a ton of punk cred. 
The newly formed lineup went into the studio in November of 1988 to begin recording the album Mother's Milk. The band chose to continue with Michael Beinhorn as producer, who had worked with the Chili Peppers on the previous record, The Uplift Mofo Party Plan. In addition to working with the Peppers, Beinhorn also produced hard rock classics such as Soundgarden's Magnus Opus, Super Unknown, and Hole's most successful album, Celebrity Skin. The band's label at the time, EMI, made Beinhorn aware of the urgency of the record, communicating that the album was the band's last chance with the label to create a hit. In 1989, hair metal bands like Motley Crue, Skid Row, Guns N' Roses, and Poison dominated mainstream rock music. So perhaps as an attempt to capture those audiences, Beinhorn steered Frusciante toward a metal-driven guitar sound rather than the slinky, funky guitar sound found on their previous albums, much to the chagrin of the rest of the band, especially Kiedis. My apologies for lumping Guns N' Roses in with those other bands, as GNR is a far superior band, but, you know, they too played sleazy metal and had long hair. Anyways, the Chili Pepper frontman said that eventually he couldn't tolerate Beinhorn's approach, culminating in an intense fight between the two, resulting in a severed relationship between the producer and the band. Regardless, Mother's Milk was released August 16th, 1989. Musically, the album built off of the funk metal featured on the album's predecessor, resulting in their heaviest album to date. And along with bands like Living Color, Faith No More, Jane's Addiction, Fishbone Primus, and Rage Against the Machine, helped to solidify the prominence and influence of funk metal in the late 80s and early 90s. Mother's Milk became the Chili Peppers' highest charting album at the time, going gold with a peak spot of 52 on the Billboard Albums charts and spawned two hit singles. The first, a tribute to Hillel Slovak, titled Knock Me Down, as well as a cover of Stevie Wonder's Higher Ground. Knock Me Down became the band's most successful single at the time, charting at number six on the rock charts. Although Higher Ground didn't chart as well, it still managed to peak at number 11 on the rock charts and further increased the band's exposure with a well-received music video, which got nominated for Breakthrough Video at the 1990 MTV Video Music Awards. Despite the success of the record relative to their three previous albums, the Chili Peppers felt it was only mar marginal and attributed part of the blame to EMI, causing them to switch to Warner Brothers. In April of 1991, they joined forces with legendary producer Rick Rubin, who had already worked with icons such as the Beastie Boys, Run DMC, Slayer, and LL Cool J to record their fifth studio album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. The sessions occurred at a mansion in Laurel Canyon that Harry Houdini once rented and is said to have housed both the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix. With the exception of Smith, who commuted, the band stayed at the property during recording, which, according to Flea, helped maintain a more relaxed environment. The Chili Peppers welcomed Rubin's more subdued approach, which contrasted Beinhorn's more controlling leadership style. The album featured their signature rap funk rock on tunes such as If You Have to Ask, Mellow Ship, Mellow Ship, Slinky, and B Major, and Funky Monks. Though the Chili Peppers somewhat abandoned the funk metal that dominated their previous two albums, they did include a couple of tunes of that nature, such as The Righteous and the Wicked and Suck My Kiss. The inclusion of introspective ballads, in which Frusciante often accompanied with acoustic guitar, allowed for the most revolutionary change for the band that would alter the trajectory of the band's style for the next 30-plus years. Those ballads included the alleged story of Kiedis' romantic relationship with Irish singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor in I Could Have Lied. The Led Zeppelin 3 esque Breaking the Girl, in which he laments his role 
in a previous toxic relationship, as well as the vulnerable account of addiction, loneliness, and constructive reflection in the classic Under the Bridge. Although these ballads represented immaturity in Kiedis' lyrics, the album maintained the oversexed ethos that dominated the band's songwriting during the 80s with sexual imagery and tunes such as Sir Psycho Sexy, Apache Rose Peacock, Suck My Kiss, and of course, the title track. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the record came out the same day as Nirvana's Nevermind on September 24th, 1991. The album became a massive success both commercially and critically. The first two singles on the album, Give It Away, and the previously mentioned Under the Bridge, quickly became the band's biggest singles up to that time. With a number one peak on the rock charts for the former and a number two position on the Billboard Hot 100 for the latter. Roughly two months after the release of Under the Bridge, the single, the album hit number three on the Billboard Hot 200 in May of 1992 and went on to sell 13 million copies, signaling Blood Sugar Sex Magic's status as a crossover sensation. Not everyone enjoyed this success, though. The young guitarist started experiencing qualms regarding his membership in the band as soon as the Peppers completed the record. He saw the direction of the group as incompatible with his desires for the band. While the rest of the band relished in the newfound stardom and world tour playing in large venues, Frusciante resented it, preferring the more humble touring situation of the Mother's Milk era. That, in combination with his struggles with substances, led to his resignation, the morning of May 7, 1992, while on tour in Japan. The other members convinced Frusciante to perform that evening, but the very next day he flew back to L.A. as an ex-guitarist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, where he would enter a tragic part of his life in which his drug use hijacked his well-deserved earnings with the band as well as his physical and mental health. Meanwhile, despite canceling the remainder of their Japan tour, the band regrouped in July of 1992 for the Lollapalooza tour with Eric Marshall, an L.A.-based guitarist who would work with major artists including Etta James and Sting. The Chili Peppers appreciated Marshall's ability to learn the band's catalog so rapidly, rapidly and recognized his chops, but did not feel that they would translate well in the studio. Therefore, he was dismissed before he could record any tracks in the studio with the band. However, he does appear in two music videos shot during his brief tenure. The band recruited Jesse Tobias in 1993 following Marshall's exit after Kiedis saw his band Mother Tongue perform at an L.A. nightclub. His brief stint with the Chili Peppers lasted less than a month and no recording or live performance occurred during that time, but it all worked out for Tobias, who currently serves as the guitarist and co-writer for the British alternative rock singer Morrissey and toured with Alanis Morissette throughout the late 90s and early 2000s. Even before Marshall and Tobias joined the band for their cup of coffee, the Chili Peppers wanted Dave Navarro to fill the vacancy that Frusciante left. Navarro made a name for himself as the guitarist for the alt-rock legends Jane's Addiction. Navarro declined the Chili Peppers' offer in 92 due to his commitment to other projects following Jane's Addiction's breakup. However, during the growing pains of Tobias' tenure with the band, Navarro became available, resulting in Tobias' dismissal and Navarro's entrance. Although on paper the partnership between Navarro and the Chili Peppers seemed like an alternative rock match made in heaven, the roadblocks appeared instantly with Navarro struggling to feel impassioned playing the band's brand defunct. He ignored those concerns, stating, quote, When I'm playing with three other guys I love and feel camaraderie with, it's enjoyable to play funk. He debuted live with the Chili Peppers on May 30, 1994 at the Viper Room in West Hollywood, but played his first major gig 
at Woodstock 94. Their performance became immortalized when the band took the stage wearing light bulb costumes and kept them on for the first two songs. In preparation for putting together their next record, the Chili Peppers began writing with Navarro. Kiedis characterized writing with him as difficult. He felt that writing with Slovak and Frusciante was natural, so much so that he simply assumed that all guitarists could just come up with accompaniment to the lyrics and melody he shared. The band returned to the studio early in the summer of 1994 to record their sixth studio album, One Hot Minute, with Rick Rubin returning as producer. Prior to the recording sessions, Kiedis relapsed as a result of being prescribed painkillers to deal with the discomfort from his wisdom teeth removal, reigniting his addiction. Consequently, Kiedis attended the sessions sporadically. So even though the instrumentalists finished recording rather quickly, Kiedis's absenteeism resulted in the prolonging of the recording process, which ultimately did not end until February of 1995. Since I want to review the music the musical and songwriting elements more in-depth during the track-by-track analysis here in a minute, I will only briefly summarize the overall themes of the album. Rick Rubin injected his metal past with a much heavier sound featured on One Hot Minute than its predecessor, even perhaps with certain tunes exceeding the aggressiveness found on Mother's Milk and the Uplift Mofo Party Plan. In addition to his own role in steering the band towards metal, Navarro also incorporated psychedelic rock in the album's repertoire. Up to that point, they had only scratched the surface with that genre in their song Behind the Sun from Uplift. Although comparatively minimal, the album did feature its fair share of funk, and despite Navarro's ambivalence towards the Pepper's classic genre, he held his own on the tracks of that nature. Lyrically, the album is very dark, and themes of depression and addiction hit different since Kiedis was going through those very things while writing and recording. One Hot Minute was released on September 12, 1995. Commercially, it did not match the success of its predecessor, selling less than half as many copies as Blood Sugar Sex Magic and failing to exceed Blood Sugar's spot on the Billboard Hot 200. Although three singles did achieve moderate success, the most successful being My Friends speaking at number one on the rock charts, none of them charted on the Billboard Hot 100. Although the album avoided ridicule for the most part, critics overall found the album a bit underwhelming. Robert Criscow gave the album, called the album, a dud. Stephen Thomas Earlwine of AllMusic gave the album a 3 out of 5 star review, calling the melodies and lyrics weak, and blasting the band for writing multiple songs in the spirit of Under the Bridge, with the sole purpose of pleasing the mainstream. Even while giving it a B+, David Brown of Entertainment Weekly criticized the length of many of the songs. Despite these lukewarm reviews, Dana Darzen of Rolling Stone magazine spoke highly of the record, stating, After a 10-plus year career, they're realizing their potential at last. The band got into good trouble in August of 1995 when they released the music video for their single, Warped. At the end of the video, Kiedis and Navarro engage in a kiss, much much to the dismay, of the record label. The optic of two men kissing in 1995 left many of their conservative audience upset. The Chili Peppers doubled down on the decision, with the October 95 issue of Guitar Magazine featuring Navarro and Flea sharing a smooch this time. While many retailers pulled the magazine off their shelves, the Chili Peppers were unapologetic of the kisses. Three of the members of the band released statements basically all but saying fuck off to those who took issue. In late September 95, the band embarked on their One Hot Minute tour, and like the album's reviews, the tour was shaky at best. 
The Chili Peppers scheduled their U.S. tour to begin in mid-November of 95, but had to delay it to February of 96 due to Chad Smith breaking his arm at a baseball game. Overall, 33 dates were canceled due to multiple injuries that Keita sustained both on and off the stage. Fittingly, the last show of the tour and last gig with Novaro on July 26, 1997 in Yamanashi, Japan, as part of that year's Fuji Rock Festival, got interrupted and cut short due to a typhoon. In April of 1998, MTV announced that Navarro and the Chili Peppers parted ways. Although both the band and Navarro played off the breakup as a mutual decision, Kiedis wrote in his autobiography that Navarro's substance abuse hindered his contributions at rehearsal, leading to his dismissal from the band. Shortly after, following an emotional embrace with Flea, a newly sober John Frusciante re-emerged for his second stint as guitarist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Before I give my track-by-track analysis and reasons for why One Hot Minute has become a forgotten album, I will briefly discuss Frusciante's third album with the band titled Californication. It hit the shelves hit the shelves on June 8, 1999, and not only exceeded the commercial success of One Hot Minute, it also exceeded the sales of Blood Sugar Sex Magic. With four hit singles, the Chili Peppers experienced their most success on the singles charts, with three number ones on the rock charts and two of those tunes becoming top 20 hits on the Billboard Hot 100. The Chili Peppers' two following albums, By the Way and Stadium Arcadium, also maintained the critical and commercial success found on Californication, immortalizing the band as one of the most enduring and beloved bands in modern music history. And though many view One Hot Minute as an obstacle to that status, I think the record only solidifies the lore that has endeared millions of fans to the 2012 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. For my track-by-track analysis, in addition to giving random commentary about each song, I inevitably will be corny and give each song a rating of either Red Hot, Hot, Lukewarm, or Cold. Track 1, Warped. Perhaps their best opening song off any of their 90s albums. Warped perfectly sets the tone for the rest of the album. The lyrics are dark, as Kiedis depicts his shame, anger, and discomfort with his relapse on drugs. Although Smith plays a funky offbeat rhythm, that's really the only thing that's funk about this tune. Overall, Warped is an aggressive, heavy, psychedelic rock tune that concludes with a soft and ambient outro, which serves perhaps as a glimmer of hope that Kiedis will again overcome his drug issues. The song also foreshadows the heavy experimentalism found on the record, with strong delay placed on Kiedis' vocals throughout the verses. I welcome this first track with a rating of Hot. Track 2, Aeroplane. Probably the only song on the album that the majority of the fan base still fancies, the album's second track begins in the style of the melodic psychedelia found at the end of Warped, before abruptly transitioning into funky pop rock. Lyrically, Kiedis continues to painfully hint at the tolls of his relapse with lines like, quote, Pleasure spiked with pain, that motherfuckers always spiked with pain. As well as, quote, Someone better slap me before I start to rust, before I start to decompose. The interesting contrast between the darkness of the lyrics and the happy, upbeat mood of the instrumentals helps make it a standalone track. Also, non-indulgent solos from Flea and Navarro, along with Smith's less-is-more-yet funk-filled drum parts, are the icing on the cake. 
The tune, though, only peaked at number 8 on the rock charts, which I deem a travesty. I consider this one an all-time top 10 Chili Pepper song. So, I easily and without hesitation give Aeroplane a rating of Red Hot. Track 3, Deep Kick When David Brown criticized the excessive length of certain songs, he most likely was referring to this song. At 6 minutes and 33 seconds, it's a pretty long one for sure. But for me, it never gets boring. Another one of the more experimental tunes on the record, the first minute and 40-some-odd seconds include minimalistic instrumentals, along with a spoken monologue from Kiedis describing his and Flea's coming-of-age spirit in Los Angeles before transitioning into their old-school punk-funk vibes with Slash Meets Jimi Hendrix lead guitar from Navarro. Kiedis then recounts tales from their experiences in high school and their early adulthood. Right before the third verse, there is this gnarly interlude, concluding with one of my favorite moments from the album, a 10-second duet between Navarro and Flea. Deep Kick ends with a slowed-down tempo and a sung monologue, this time from Flea, leaving listeners with a friendly word of advice originating from the legendary rock band The Butthole Surfers, with, quote, It's better to regret something you did than something you didn't do. Though one of the most creative tunes in their discography, maybe David Brown did kind of have a point. I give Deep Kick a rating of hot. Track 4, My Friends. I don't want to talk much about this next song. Frankly, it's my least favorite on the album. Critics were dead on when they said this tune was an attempt to recreate the feel, structure, tone, and pop radio success of Under the Bridge. And Dave Navarro really should have thrown out his acoustic guitar after the success of his former band's hit. Jane says, since it really doesn't work here. Kiedis' lyrics are even worse. I think the sentiment of the theme is genuine, but the delivery is detrimentally feeble. So yeah, overall, bad song. I give my friends a rating of cold. Track 5, Coffee Shop. Whenever I listen to One Hot Minute in its entirety, I never skip My Friends, because it just makes the fifth song on the record even better. If someone ever asks you what funk metal sounds like, show them this tune along with Nobody Weird Like Me off Mother's Milk and Backwoods off the Uplift Mofo Party Plan, it's perhaps the band's heaviest tune. Flea's aggressive pop slap bass and somewhat indulgent solo to finish out the track crown him as the MVP. Everything else in this song supports the bass perfectly. The melody is catchy, Navarro's riff is sexy and ominous, and Chad Smith demolishes the skins, all contributing to one hell of a song. I give Coffee Shop a rating of Red Hot. Track 6, P. Another example of the uniqueness and experimentalism of the album, the sixth song, P, features Flea and only Flea. In under two minutes, he and his acoustic bass tell an autobiographical story of getting bullied. This song is the second notable instance in which the historically boorish group takes a stand against toxic masculinity with the line, quote, Fuck you, asshole, you homophobic redneck dick. One of the most minimalist songs in the Peppers discography, other than a brief harmony at the end, it appears there is just a vocal and bass track. Flea's vocal and the tune sound refreshing, and the minimalism really allows for the listener to ingest the sobering lyrics. On the contrary to how the song might make you feel, I give P a rating of hot. Track 7 one Big Mob. 
At six minutes, the seventh song off One Hot Minute is another that David Brown has to reluctantly sit patiently through. Definitely a song that could have been reduced significantly in length. I certainly wouldn't call this behemoth of a funk metal song bad. I would, though, call it a skip-over song. One Big Mob's multiple bridges drag out the song and render its epic build-up anticlimactic. The extent of the band's experimentalism is commendable, but the song's uncommon structure comes off as odd rather than unique. Thus, I give One Big Mob a rating of lukewarm. Track 8, Walkabout. Much like Coffee Shop redeeming the inadequacies of my friends, Walkabout exonerates the mediocrity of One Big Mob. The song continues the album's experimental tendencies, being perhaps the jazziest in their catalog. Navarro's exceptional guitar work incorporates elements of jazz, funk, R&B, and rock to complement the subtle approach of the tight rhythm section. The The tranquility of the instrumentals enables listeners to focus on the interesting lyrics, in which Kiedis gives an insight into The Walkabout, which is an Aboriginal Australian rite of passage from adolescence to adulthood. Also interesting, his delivery of the lyrics. He's not quite singing, but he's also not quite rapping, and the vocals are more melodic than just talking. So, whatever he's doing with his voice, it contributes effectively to this underrated gem. I give Walkabout a rating of Red Hot. Track 9, Tear Jerker. Appropriately titled Tear Jerker, this raw power ballad eulogizes Kurt Cobain as Kiedis pours out the sadness of losing his friend and contemporary. The lyrics represent a maturity for the band, as Kiedis pens arguably the most vulnerable song on the record. In the tender third verse, Kiedis shares the physical features of Cobain that he found endearing. I know it sounds silly through the lens of 2023, but I would imagine that talking in that manner about the physical appearance of a male friend as a heterosexual would be subject to ridicule within certain large circles in 1995 making it another example of the Chili Peppers' music running counter to the toxic masculinity of the era. Beyond the sentimental lyrics, Kiedis gives his best vocal performance of the album, showcasing a solid timbre and wide vocal range. Navarro also holds his own brilliantly in this tune. The chords and licks he plays are peaceful and gentle. He also demonstrates an ability to adapt, ditching his normal shredding approach to solos for a slower, more tender one played with clean tone. Songs serving as tributes to fallen artists occurred frequently during the 90s, but this one stands out. While the words pay homage to Kurt Cobain the man, through the structure of the song with with its soft verses and loud choruses, just as Nirvana famously did, the music pays homage to Kurt Cobain the musician. I give Tearjerker a rating of Red Hot. Track 10, One Hot Minute. The tenth song on the album comes in hot, no pun intended. Right off the bat, you know this is not a tune that will help you fall asleep. It's loud and abrasive, and along with Coffee Shop, the heaviest song on the album. It's also hella catchy, so much so that I'm a bit confused as to why it wasn't chosen as a single, especially considering it is the title track, probably because of its liberal length, though. The structure's dynamics keep it interesting throughout, even with an extended yet subdued interlude. The vague lyrics somewhat paint a picture of young love, but its prose will most likely not give you the feels. It's one of the few songs in their discography you can sum up as simply a solid rock song. I give One Hot Minute, the song of course, a rating of 
Track 11, Falling Into Grace. Another underrated tune on the record, it's one of the few songs on the album to feature their classic funk rock sound. Reminiscent of the Beatles' trip to India in 1968, Rick Rubin turned multiple members of the band onto transcendental meditation in the mid-90s. This likely inspired the romantic spiritual imagery found throughout the lyrics with lines like, quote, Meditating in the morning, head dressed in white, beauty bazaar. And, quote, you can smell the purple light coming from her heart, get lost and wet. Navarro's unexpected Middle Eastern-style guitar solo adds another chapter to the book of experimentalism found on the album. Accompanying that chapter, Kundali yoga instructor Gurmukh Kar Khalsa chants towards the end of the song. Chanting is a common practice in her school of yoga. Unfortunately, Navarro's use of the talk box throughout the song distracts from the neat elements of the song. Therefore, I give Falling Into Grace a rating of hot. Track 12, Shallow Be Thy Game. Continuing the album's countercultural attitude, the penultimate song on the record criticizes fundamental Christianity. Ketis proudly celebrates heresy and independent thought and essentially tells, quote, fundamental hatred to, uh, Perform fellatio on him. Another tune in the vein of the Chili Peppers' classic hard funk rock sound, the song's aggression along with its complexity makes it sound like it could have been on Blood Sugar Sex Magic. At around the three-minute mark, Smith plays his best fill of the album, leading into a brief but maybe the most explosive jam on the album. Beyond his crafty fills, Smith wins the MVP of the song with his dynamic performance maintaining the fierce energy throughout. Overall, this song reminds me of Give It Away, but not in a bad way like my friends, reminding people of Under the Bridge. It's just an upbeat, heavy, catchy, and liberating funk rock song. Shallow Be Thy Game for sure gets a rating of Red Hot. Track 13, Transcending. The final song of the forgotten album is sad, drawn out, unfocused, filled with musical non sequiturs, contains probably the most awkward sounding bridge in their discography, and because of all that, serves as the perfect closer for one hot minute. In transcending, the Chili Peppers pay tribute to their dear friend, actor River Phoenix, who died of an overdose on Halloween two years prior at the age of 23. Musically, the song represents the two ends of the spectrum that dominate the record, psychedelia and metal. The first half contains the former, while the second half accommodates the latter. The abruptness in the transition between the two perhaps represents the quick shift in emotions a person experiences following the unexpected death of a loved one. One of the most interesting songs in their catalog, Transcending, paints such a clear image of the Dave Navarro era of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Therefore, although not one of my favorites, I have no choice but to give it a rating of Red Hot. Now that I have wrapped up the track-by-track -track analysis, I must ask a couple of questions. One easy and one hard. Let's start with a difficult question, which will inevitably spur many more questions. Why is One Hot Minute a forgotten album? I have to start this answer by mentioning the three groups of people, critics, fans, and of course the band, because they are the entities in control of designating an album as a classic or a dud. Let's start with the critics. Why did they feel that One Hot Minute was a poor follow-up to Blood Sugar Sex Magic? What did Blood Sugar Sex Magic have that One Hot Minute didn't? Also, part of the reason that One Hot Minute fits my definition of a forgotten album has to do with, this, with its successor, 
Californication. Why did the praise for that album eclipse its predecessor? Let's start with Blood Sugar Sex Magic. That album was full of surprises, but at the same time largely features an array of concise, well-produced songs that represented the funk core of the Chili Pepper brand. The music was more linear, with polished and filtered songs. The transitions between tracks fit like a glove. The structure of each song flowed, and Rick Rubin extracted every inch of musicianship out of the four peppers on that record. And all of that equated to a magnus opus. One Hot Minute, on the other hand, was, for lack of a better phrase, all over the place, which I don't say begrudgingly, by the way. The experimentalism, in part, causes the perception of unfocus, perhaps putting off critics. Also, the curious song placement does not fit quite as well. The transitions between Warped and Aeroplane, as well as between Walkabout and Tearjerker, are on point, but the transitions otherwise lack cohesion. And while the musicianship definitely does showcase the abilities of each member, I'm not quite sure Kiedis possessed the vocal development at that point to abandon the frequency of his rapping found on previous albums. On Blood Sugar, Kiedis mainly raps, so when he sings on the album's occasional but significant ballads, it's like, whoa, this guy can kind of sing. Cool. Switching a bit to their Magnus Opus Jr., with Californication, he mainly sings, but for that album, he showcases the improvement of his vocals, enough to designate him as a full-fledged singer, even receiving a comparison to Jeff Buckley in one review. Probably the key element included in both those albums, Missing in One Hot Minute, that I'm sure critics noted, the presence of Mr. John Anthony Frusciante. To call Frusciante a generational talent is too obvious, and calling him a guitar god, too cliched. When Frusciante plays guitar, he squeezes the glue that holds together the signature sound of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and frankly, and frankly, critics couldn't acclimate to the absence of that. So that's my reason. So that's my opinion of the reasons for the media's dissatisfaction with the record. But why didn't fans embrace the album? Plenty of albums get heavily criticized, but still sell exceptionally well. For example, critics abhorred Stone Temple Pilots' debut "Core," but it still sold over eight million copies, the most for any STP album. Metacritic, Metacritic assigned a harsh 47 out of 100 for Katy Perry's 2008 breakthrough album, One of the Boys, but it still sold 7 million copies, especially impressive considering that era's presence of file sharing. And critics didn't love the Black Eyed Peas' 2005 me mega-successful record, Monkey Business, but that present-day shot of millennial nostalgia sold 10 million copies. So why didn't the Chili Pepper fan base come out and support One Hot Minute? I think the blame for this should be placed on, well, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think their single selection and the order in which they released them could have been rethought. On Blood Sugar Sex Magic, the first two singles, Give It Away and Under the Bridge, achieved the most success. However, One Hot Minute's first two singles, Warped and My Friends, lacked the accessibility, memorability, and overall quality of its predecessor's opening singles. I think Aeroplane definitely should have been the opening single with Tearjerker following. Aeroplane's catchiness and Tearjerker's relevance within a pop culture context would have intrigued fans and casual listeners far more than the ones chosen. But, way more than that, in our current year of 2023, I think One Hot Minute is forgotten because the Red Hot Chili Peppers want it that way. The album's songs rarely show up on the band's set lists, with P remaining the only song that the Chili Peppers consistently have played live with Frusciante on the stage. During the band's tour supporting their 2016 effort, The Getaway, 
during Frusciante's second hiatus from the band, they played Aeroplane live pretty frequently. But that song has not seen the light of day since Frusciante's return in 2019. Chad Smith said in a 2014 Reddit AMA that the reason for this omission of those tunes from their live shows is that the Chili Peppers don't feel emotionally connected to the album. I think behind Smith's gentle response rests the negative memories that several members of the band associate with that time period, especially Akitas and Frusciante. Both suffered substance abuse issues, with Frusciante's addiction inches from irreparably destroying his life. The guitarist released two questionable solo albums during that time, the second of which Frusciante put together only for drug money. It's an incredibly unsettling experience listening to that record, to say the least. I'm sure for those two members, the Dave Navarro era songs forced them to relive a painful time. And since the Peppers have such a deep catalog, it's understandable they exclude them. But why do I love this album? I first heard this album in its entirety at 15 years old an age typically filled with angst, confusion, and exploration. You can characterize One Hot Minute with those nouns as well. While Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, and Californication are triumphant albums, pain and sadness dominate One Hot Minute's disposition. The first, the first time I heard the Red Hot Chili Peppers when I was six years old, the world was only triumphant, sheltered from the harsh realities. I didn't realize the pain, angst, confusion, and sadness so much of the world experiences every day. But conflict precedes triumph, and without conflict, triumph can't exist. One Hot Minute is the conflict. It's the separation from the cohesion, the sobriety, the sound, and accolades that surround the band's best days. But within that conflict, there lies a vulnerability which carries the ethos of the record, in turn, making the album remarkably endearing. Also, usually when the Chili Peppers write about the heavy topics of addiction and depression, they're retrospective, such as By the Way's Don't Forget Me, Californication's Scar Tissue, and Stadium Arcadium's Snow. But on One Hot Minute, the intense lyrics and subject matter center on experiences Kiedis dealt with while writing, adding an emotional layer that connects me and probably other listeners to the songs on a higher level. The unpredictable instrumentals and song structure accompanying those unsettling topics augment its magnitude. Oh yeah, and most of the songs off One Hot Minute kick ass. My next guest has the clean-cut appearance of a boy band star six-year-old me would have approved of. But don't let that fool you, as he is a massive fan of the hedonistic knuckleheads called the Red Hot Chili Peppers and talks mad smack on the basketball court. He's a Miami boy, economist, drummer, and good friend of mine. Please welcome Matthew Prado. Thank you, Dove. Happy to be here. It's going to be a great, uh, great podcast today, I think so. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate that. And, um, and you were just telling me about that your band is, uh, is working on an EP, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be good. We're been working on some originals for some time but finally getting to recording it and putting it out so now what's the name of uh your band again willow lane willow lane and then the name of the ep it's a cloud a day awesome and is that gonna be is it gonna be like on soundcloud where are you guys gonna uh we're hoping yeah to have it on spotify spotify and, yeah. i'm not sure where else but definitely on spotify awesome awesome well i'm really excited to hear it um but and uh so let's get right into it so 
So what kind of music do you listen to the most currently? Um, I really like rock music for sure. And then kind of recently, um, The Strokes, I've just been listening to a lot of Strokes albums. Probably one of my favorite bands. Obviously, I love Chili Peppers, great, great stuff. Arctic Monkeys, you know, bands like that. I just really, really enjoy it. So you like, you like the alt, like alt rock? Alt rock definitely yeah. is probably my number one genre of music that I listen to. Love that. And, and I feel like with those artists that you just listed, a lot of them heavily influenced by 90s yeah, bands. Yeah, I, I started noticing that. I was listening to 90s playlists the other day, and I just, hit after hit, you know, I just, I'm like, wow, this is, is this a great playlist? Or I just, like, love 90s music. And <laughs> I found I just love 90s music. Yeah, yeah for sure. And um, so what kind of music were you spoon-fed as a child? I know from what you've, you know, what we've talked about, you know, about your childhood, I don't assume you were spoon-fed the Chili Peppers no, absolutely um, not. Arctic Monkeys. Yes, that, that took a while for me to finally discover that music. But, um, yeah, growing up, parents kind of strict and all that good stuff, religious household, but only Christian music in the house. You know, occasionally my mom would put maybe some 80s music, you know, like the Sydney Lauper and all that type of stuff, like cleaning the house or whatever. I don't like that music. I, I, I would think based on what you to, uh, have told me that Sydney Lauper would be too liberal for your mother. Am I wrong? Right. Yeah. The, this was like the special occasion. <laughs> like, oh, I, I like this music, but you guys really shouldn't be listening yeah. to this type of stuff. Yeah. Um. That and uh, when did you so when did you start discovering like music on your own? Yeah, this was high school for sure. I mean, I was homeschooled in ninth and tenth grade, but went to private school in eleventh grade, and that's really when you know start hanging out with classmates and this and that, and like they're like, "Yo, you gotta check out this," and that's really when I started listening to uh, more music and particularly rap music. It was really big into like, "Oh, I gotta listen to the new Drake album and this and that." So that's really where it started. And then, just over time, have been just like exploring new music and all that good stuff. So that was so it was like Drake and, and different hip hop artists. That was the type of music that you started to listen to when you were kind of figuring out music on your own. Yes, definitely, and like almost exclusively too. It doesn't have to be Drake specifically, but just rap in general. Yeah. I'm pretty much always listening. To rap. That's what I was going to ask you. Is like what what other hip hop artists were you yeah. listening to in, in I high school mean, other than Drake? Because I remember like. High school for you was college for me, so I'm like trying to think of the artists, the hip hop right. artists that were big that back then. I was thinking Drake, Kendrick Lamar, obviously, yeah, Lamar, J obviously. Cole. Yeah, J Cole is a big one for sure. Um, Kanye West actually, I listen to quite a lot. Yeah. Um, obviously, he has you know a little bit of issues sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't listen to him anymore. Right, right, um, right. But you know, I I would be lying if I said that I I never had like enjoyed his music. I I love especially like my. Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. That's one of my favorite albums of all time. Now I won't listen to it again, but I I can you know admit that that is a, a truly uh, phenomenal record and really sad what happened to him. But we'll talk about more, but more positive things. Yeah, more positive things. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's that's awesome. So Drake, J Cole, and anyone else? I liked Kendrick a lot for sure. Yeah. Um, there's this group too. Um, Brockhampton. It was mm. like I have a few friends. We kind of had like this music group where we would kind of always recommend an album and then just share our thoughts and this and that and they like really liked it and at first i'm like bro these guys they, they suck or whatever <laughs> and then but this is like because i've never really even listened to any music so it's just yeah. like you gotta like i guess mature into it and i don't know but but brockhampton i mean they're still popular right yeah i mean yeah they kind of they were really small at first obviously but then they kind of did blow up and then i did see them in concert oh you did yeah in miami beach have you been to a bunch of hip-hop shows no, no, I, one, one or two maybe, but 
uh, some Christian rap artists. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what was Lecrae? Lecrae is the Lecrae, big one. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been to like two Lecrae concerts. And really? Like, yeah. And then his protege was like Andy Minio, and then I saw a few of those concerts too. But like looking back, I'm like, you listen to music and you're like, wow, this is very, this is only catered towards like middle schoolers and high schoolers. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's no way people with access to better music are, are listening to this. And I think I should have an episode for one of my hot take episodes or random topic episodes really explore Christian rap because to me that, that sounds like an oxymoron. Right. Exactly. But I know, I mean, cause I've, I've heard of Lecrae, so obviously, you know, he must be popular. Yeah. Um, uh, when did you when did you first hear the Chili Peppers? Probably college. I mean, past few years. I mean, I have just a few friends. That's kind of where I find my music recommendations. Just my friends were like, "Oh, check this out," and you know, you know, friends are always giving you recommendations. Oh, check out this show, and then people yeah. kind of shrug it off or whatever. But I always like when people recommend music, I always go listen to it. Yeah. So someone mentions it, and then I go listen to it, and then I really enjoy it, and then kind of the process so I mean, you you shouldn't have told me that because like i love sharing music with, yeah. with friends no, that's like, great to me that is that is like the highest gesture that like i can give in, within a friendship is to like share music that i like yeah, it's, it's kind of intimate i mean so people are like oh you just check out the song but even like you know my wife jackie like there's some music where i'm like i won't put in the car if she's there because i'm like what if she doesn't like it then, yeah i mean it's kind of personal well just just find it on a radio station right yeah and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's not not accessible enough, maybe. But. Yeah, no. I, I the 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 reference that I made for for listeners that don't know Matt's wife, Matt's wife, um, is that she on the way to work she likes to listen to the radio, and that's like such a normal thing. That should be such a normal thing, but like we've just yeah, kind of twenty years ago, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but because of like you know Bluetooth and aux cable, yeah. I mean I, I either listen to CDs or I'm listening to, you know, to my I, Spotify, you know. CD. Um, what, what is that? Well, the, uh, well, no, because uh, you know the aux cable that I had um, yeah, for yeah. my my iPhone, um, you know, busted. So I've been having to like listen to old CDs, which is actually kind of cool because the, I, I still somehow in my car have like CDs from when I was in middle school. So I found, and I was gonna tell, I was I was gonna tell you about this. I found in uh, Hot Fuss by the Killers, which was their I don't know if it was their debut album, but it, it was is. their breakthrough album. Um, you know, it has. Mr. Brightside and whatnot, and I found that, and it every song was perfect. It was not scratched at all, um, and that was I bought that when it came out. I, I think I was 11 years old. Wow, yeah, that's one of my favorite albums of all time. Really? Yes, I love the Killers. Well, we gotta have you if we have a Killers episode. Yeah, gotta, you'll be the guest. I definitely prefer Sam's Town, the second album, but yeah, really? Yeah, those are clear top two though, Sam's Town and Hot Fuzz. Yeah, well, that I mean, I. I, I really do want to talk about the Killers. I just think they're they're super interesting because they really um, are, are. If you look back at their hits, I mean, they're really iconic. And yeah. like they, the amount of chart success they've had, and like you know, you know, live music success that they've had, I mean, is pretty impressive for a rock band. Yeah, they're pretty accessible. Their music is just yeah. you know easy to sing along to, it's easy yeah. to listen to. So that's what they have going for them. I read, I read, uh, some, you know, some music critic. Uh, commented saying that Mr. Brightside is our generation's um, don't stop believing. That's, I mean, I would take that comparison any, any day of the week. I mean, yeah. I can, I can see it though. It's like, it's a go-to for karaoke or, I mean, it just feels like a song that everyone knows basically. Yeah. And everyone knows. And like you said, it's so easy to sing along to. Right. Super exactly. accessible. I love, that's such a great, they're, they're, they're a great band, but this is Chili Pepper. Yeah. Episode, Chili Pepper. Yes. Yes. Um, 
and you love them, I love them. And uh, so, what are your what are some of your favorite Chili Pepper songs or or albums? Um, you know, if you're familiar with like the different out al- the different albums. Yeah, I mean, album wise, by the way, I think is easily their top album. And whenever I want to just listen to just any other albums, that's the one I always feel like has the best replay value. Yeah, so that's the one I always go back to. But in terms of songs, I mean, I like you know kind of like their popular music, but other side, you know. Uh, by the way, uh, I mean, they just have so many good hits. I, Snow's probably up there too for me. But I like their 90s stuff as well. I just feel like they kind of peaked around that 2000, early 2000s. It's probably like 99 to 2006 because I feel like you had that, that trifecta Californication, by the way, in Stadium Arcadium. Exactly. And I think that's kind of, that's the, I think the way that, because there's been different generations of, you know the chili chili peppers careers right there is in the in the eighties late eighties early nineties and then I think that there is that ninety nine to two thousand six they had yeah. three albums with John Frusciante and there was kind of that signature sound that they had um, and so I think that there's something special about those three albums but and it's interesting that you mentioned by the way because that was an album that the first time I heard it I was mesmerized by it and for a while it was my favorite Chili Pepper right. album because there's something it's so melodic and it's so tranquil. Um, and also you have, you do have, by the way, and can't stop, which are more kind of upbeat and they're like, they're funk rock signatures, but then you have songs like, like Cabron, right. which is, you know, Fleet plays an upright bass and it's kind of like flamenco-esque. Yeah, it's very different. Um, but no, I think that really, and I also think that's probably the peak of Anthony Kiedis as a singer. Right. Definitely um, best vocal performance, I think. Yeah, for, for sure. And, uh, um, but yeah. Anyways, I, I apologize for going on that tangent, but I, I was more just because you mentioned. By the way, um, what did you think of b- before I move into the uh, the, the next question that I, that I had? What are what are your opinions of the uh, of the Josh Klinghoffer albums with the Chili Peppers? So you're talking like are these the early albums? So the Josh Klinghoffer albums, those were after Frusciante left the band yes, for the right, second right. time. Yeah. So that was that was I'm with you and um, the Getaway. Yeah, I don't know. I I find myself not really coming back to the to music, so maybe that does speak to what my, what what my opinion of it is. But yeah. they have they have a lot of music out, so whenever I go back to listen to Chili Peppers, I really find myself going back to you know Californication or By the Way or even kind of their earlier stuff, Mother's Milk, for example. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I just have so many questions that I could ask you. Just I mean yeah. you know, but uh, so. I, I agree with you. Like, I don't think that Josh Klinghoffer's albums are as good. And I think, and it's because probably something you'll agree with me with, that John Frusciante um, is just so integral to the, you know, the Chili Peppers yeah, know, I sound. Think I, I, it's, I mean, obviously they've made music without him, and that music they made out without him is good. Mm-hmm. But it just, it feels, I don't know, like a, a kind of a void that only he can fill. Yeah. Only he can fill it, yeah. It's interesting. And I don't know how much you know about the Chili Peppers history. Do you know about, like, Hillel Slovak? And... Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, mostly familiar. Yeah, so so Hillel Slovak is the original guitarist, but only, only did two albums with them. Didn't even do their debut. Right. Um, because he had, like, he left to be in this other project, but that project didn't work out. So he, like, he came back to the Chili Peppers and did two albums. And I think, like, you have the two Chili Pepper signature um, sounds, and I think it's one with... Is, with Hillel Slovak um, and the other with John Frusciante. But I think John Frusciante is the guitarist that like 
casual listeners or casual listeners of the Chili Peppers, just casual listeners of rock music are familiar with because, you know, Frusciante is the one that was with the band with when they had all the hits. Exactly. Um, so, anyways, I, I, my, my apologies. I'm going to go on a lot of tangents. I mean, um, it's, it's related. We're, we're talking yeah. about Chili Peppers. Yeah. So. <laughs> but, um, anyways, so what are your... Uh, do you ever um, play or have you ever played any songs by the Chili Peppers on drums? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I love to drum... I uh, love to drum along to their music. You know, Danny California is probably the most, oh, let me turn this on. It's very easy to kind of throw in some fills and just go along with the groove and all that good stuff. But, yeah, I, I like to just play along. Stadium Arcadium is probably the number one album when I just want to put something on and play along with, definitely. Um, and, of course, had opportunity with Separate Checks to play some Chili Pepper songs. Yeah, so uh, so Separate Checks, um, he, what he's referring to, that's, the, uh, that's my band. Well, I know last week we had Ryan... Ryan Gilman on, and he's the guitarist. I'm the drummer of that band. And when I was in uh, over last summer, summer of 2022, I was doing some volunteer work in uh, Mexico, and uh, Matt took over for me and played a show, and he did a phenomenal job. And one of the covers that we do is Danny California. Yeah. Um, but are there any other songs off Stadium Arcadium that you kind of like to jam out to? Uh, I mean, Danny California is really the go-to. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing with me. I, like, I get singularly focused on different things. So I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, there's so many options. It's such a long album, too. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's it's interesting because like my one of my best friends in Florida, you know, he's a big Chili Pepper fan, and he loves Stadium Arcadium. That's his favorite album. Really? And I and I love Stadium Arcadium. It's probably it's a top five for me. But there's definitely I think a, a bunch of filler songs, especially on. Yeah, that's that's my issue with it. Yeah. A little little too long, maybe. Yeah, especially on well, because there's like Jupiter, and I don't remember the name of the other. Yeah, was it Jupiter and Mars? Maybe. That sounds right. Definitely Jupiter, but I don't remember. Um. So Jupiter is, I think if they had just released Jupiter, that would have been like yeah. an amazing album that has like, that has all the hits, Danny California, Snow, Charlie, exactly. all that stuff. Um, but that's, that, it is, it is, but I, what I do like about City Marketing, even with the fillers, is that I think the Chili Peppers kind of allow themselves to be a little bit more indulgent. Exactly. You know, and by the way, in Californication, it's much, they had that less is more approach. In City Marketing, they're just like, let's abandon that, you know. Yeah. Indulgent is, is a great way to describe it, for sure. Um, and uh, why do you think that the Chili Peppers have had such a big influence on rock and pop music? I feel like they represent... Yeah, like, they're just good representatives. So they represent, like, I feel like the state of California pretty well with, like, kind of the vibes and all that stuff. And even the kind of music that you kind of mentioned earlier, Cabron, where it's, like, you know, kind of Mexican influence in California, mm-hmm. too. So it's, like, you can see that influence. And then also kind of just the 90s too they're like you know they represent and you know specifically that one hot men album where that really represents i feel like 90s rock it's like and you can see their influence across other bands as well and you can see how they are influenced by other bands as well so it's like kind of a culmination of a bunch of different factors coming all together well i I love that response and uh, that's a good segue into um my next question so how would you define a forgotten album yeah just forgotten album um, when you when you go to like talk about a band's discography, it's like it doesn't really come up much in conversation or not when there's not really much strong feelings on it. You know, yes, if you have a stinker, people are gonna bring up, oh, I can't believe they had that. Or you have really good music, obviously that gets talked about a lot. But where it's kind of something where it's people kind of consider filler or maybe from a transitional period, things like that. But yeah, just something that just doesn't get get talked about often. Even amongst like kind of like big big fans from the band. Interesting. No, that's 
for sure. Like, um, I, I really, really like that take. Um, and would you agree that One Hot Minute, by your definition, is a forgotten album? Yeah, it's probably one of the best examples of a forgotten album. It's just because, I mean, I guess even particularly for the Chili Peppers specifically, they have so many albums out where it's easy to kind of forget some of the stuff they put out. But, yeah, I mean, it's just because they don't have Frusciante on the album, and I feel that's part of it. And, um, you know, just they don't have as much radio, radio quote-unquote, hits mm-hmm. on, on that album, too, so... People don't really, when they go back and look at the list, they don't really, oh, I, this song, or they don't really have a song, a hit song they kind of associate with the album. I mean, of course, you know, you have like Tearjerker or My Friends, and those are great songs on the album, but kind of just when it comes to more popular songs, they don't really have a, kind of like a hit, so, so to speak. Yeah, and that was and that was something that I mentioned in the, in, the previous sec, in the previous section, is that I think that part of the reason that the album wasn't as commercially successful as it could have been was I think they had a really poor choice of singles, um, right? And because I think their first their first two singles um, on Blood Sugar Sex Magic, um, Give It Away was the first, yeah, and Under Give the it Bridge away. was the second, and those are two of their most recognizable iconic songs, and those are great singles choices. You know, they're probably two of the catchiest, uh, you know, songs on, on on Blood Sugar. So, but whereas One Hot Minute, the first two singles are Warped and. I think the second one was My Friends. Mm-hmm. And I was like, to me, those are... I think Warped's a, a good song, but to be released as a single, I, I, I think... I don't I think, see Warped as a single, no. Yeah. Yeah. It is a great song, but... It's, that's the opener, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a great opener. I, I liked the order of the song. I like it as an opener, but to release as a single, it does not really kind of like that... Something with that replay value or, or everyone's going to be singing along to the chorus type song. Exactly. And I think for a lead single, and if you look at like the Chili Peppers discography they their first single is always a banger right and it's always a big i mean you go back like going back and first you have give it away we'll skip over one hot minute the new californication was around the world by the way it was the title track stadium arcane Dan in california i mean these are catchy songs brilliant songs that achieved you know a ma- mainstream success so i just think that you know warped is really war- a weak choice right i would agree i would agree but at the same time i think it's a great opener for the album Exactly, but for the singles, when you're trying to attract listeners to purchase your CD, I think it was pretty weak. And also, and I know that Aeroplane was um, was a single, but I think it was released too late because to me that to me that's the crowning moment. But to me, that that's the one I would release as a single. That's really how you're going to get people to be. Oh, I like the sound. I like the song. I want to. I want to hear the rest of the album type thing. Kind of like a hook for sure. Aeroplane. I think has the most replay value, and I think that's what you would want in a single to kind of hype up your album. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I know you mentioned Aeroplane, and we talked a little bit about like my friends and Warped. What are some of your favorite songs on the album besides those? But besides that, Tearjerker stands out. Mm-hmm. Um, but those those three songs. What do you like about Tearjerker? Um, the vocals. I mean, and then also um, kind of the guitar. Really, yeah, really speaks to me in that song. I love that you mentioned that because, like, in the previous segment when I was talking about Tearjerker, I mentioned that the two things that really stand out to me are Kiedis. I think that's that's Kiedis' best vocal performance in the yeah. album, which is not a... I don't think One Hot Minute's a great vocal album for him. Right. I think he... I think he saw um, the potential with his voice with Under the Bridge uh, from Blood Sugar and a couple others, like, I could have lied. Um, and he kind of took that and was like, oh, well, I can sing every song. And it's like, you're not there yet, man. Yeah. Like, you're, like... You're getting there, but you're not quite. You can there. see you can see the progression, though. Yeah, and I think you really you do see his improvement on you know Californication, by the way, Stadium Arcadia, et cetera. 
but not too much on one hot minute. But uh, but yeah. So you no, know, tearjerker is great, and I love and I love Navarro. Like he he really, I I think he's a great guitarist, and that brings me to my next question: What do you think of Dave Navarro on guitar? Yeah, he's definitely um, he's underrated for sure. People kind of kind of dismiss him or like, yeah, he's fine, but no, he's really talented. He's has chops and. You know, people argue, oh, he's maybe he's a better guitar player than Frusciante, or but Frusciante's a better fit for the band for Jilly Peppers. But I don't know about that. But yeah, like I wouldn't say that Frusciante um, is a. I think Frusciante's better, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say Navarro is better. What I would say is Nerv, uh, Navarro's a better shredder. Than yeah, Frusciante. exactly. But like I think um, in, in terms of virtuosity, I think Frusciante takes the cake there. Yeah, and then Frusciante just has, he's able to capture that, that funk feel yeah. that's really kind of integral to Chili Pepper sound. So it's kind of lacking with Navarro, but I mean, he still plays incredibly well. It's just it's just not quite Frusciante. And the thing is, is that like the One Hot Minute Chili Peppers is a good band. Like it's, in my opinion, I think it's a great album. It's just, it's not the Chili Peppers sound that, you know, people associate with. Right. Associate them. It would have been interesting if they were able to, with Navarro, make a follow-up album to One Hot Minute. That would have been. I understand. I think they had like some issues with you know like drug use and stuff around that time. Maybe maybe could could have prevented that. Who knows? But I think it would have been interesting to see if they, with that same group, made a follow-up album to One Hot Minute. What the sound would have been like. I think that would have been interesting. You know, it's interesting. I have to. I need to listen to it again. But they recorded one song with Navarro um, after One Hot Minute. And I started listening to it, and it's, uh, you know, it was just kind of a draft, if you will. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I'll have to send that to you. I don't remember the name of it, but it kind of gives you insight into what a Navarro follow-up would have been. But I think in a parallel universe, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see what, you know, what would have happened with the Chili Peppers if Dave Navarro right. was with them. Like, would they be looked at like they are now? Because right now, they're, I mean, they're essentially like, their status is like Guns N' Roses or not maybe the Rolling Stone but like Guns N' Roses and uh, you know Nirvana and there's like those really popular um, you know late 80s early 90s bands and they've been able to just be incredibly influential and regarded as you know one of the most important bands in the last I don't know how 30 40 years um, but with what would have happened if would that have, would have been the would that have been the case if uh, Frusciante right. hadn't come back to the band. If it was just Navarro or if there was some other guitarist that, you know, replaced Navarro. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's, I don't think you can do all that without Frusciante. I think, I think it's necessary that for kind of where they're at now, I don't think they get there with just Navarro. Here's another, here's another interesting question. What happens if you know, Frusciante, because you know about like what happened to Frusciante during the 90s? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So he, I mean, uh, this was having a lot of issues with with drugs, especially mm-hmm. heroin, um, and you know he was he was inches from you know destroying his life yeah. irreparably, um, and I just wonder if if he is unable to rejoin the band, Navarro's fired, the Chili Peppers decide to break up, you know, and their the story of the Chili Peppers is nineteen eighty three to nineteen ninety eight. What it, what is the Chili Peppers legacy like? How are they looked at? Yeah, I mean, probably you know pretty well known amongst you know rock fans and '90s fans and things like that. But they don't reach that level 
kind of status as you were saying of like you know the Nirvana or even Rolling Stones. I'd put I'd put them on that same kind yeah. of tier where because you know their longevity. Even they've had recent music within the past year or two, or, and it's just it's still catchy music, still good music to people want to sing along to, people want to cover it, people want to play it, and that longevity doesn't. If they, if the band doesn't play, you know, for that long period of time, I don't think they have that quite quite have that legacy. Yeah, they're probably look back. It's and it's. I was. It's interesting. Uh, I think that if they had broken up after one hot minute, or if Navarro had continued with the band and they just didn't have any other mm-hmm. really successful albums after that, I think they would have been regarded as Jane's Addiction, which was right, right, exactly. Navarro's previous band that and Jane's Addiction was an incredibly important band in the history of alternative rock, but. But nobody really talks about them. No. Not even close to the same right. level of popularity or legacy as Chili Peppers or Nirvana or a band like that. Right. They might give you a shot of nostalgia. Right. Right. But, you know, they're not going to be up there. In, they're not, Jane's Addiction, to my knowledge, not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Chili Peppers are, you know. Um, have you listened to Jane's Addiction before? Yeah. I mean, even in anticipation of this, because I know that's kind of Navarro's, Navarro's thing as well. But I like their music for sure. It's just different vibe. And you know, I, I like the Chili Peppers more. Yeah, just put a I, I you know I can't really get into Jane's Addiction too much, but like I understand their importance, right? Um, and it and it makes sense as to why they would want Navarro because they they weren't a funk band per se, but they did have element. Like they there was there were definitely instances if you listen to their music where like I think you can kind of hear a little bit of funk, and so that's why they're like, oh, we're alternative rock. Yeah, Jane's Addiction alternative rock. Yeah. Let's get Dave Navarro. Yeah, it's yeah, alt, alt rock. You have Navarro. I mean, you can just put out anything and be in that genre, I guess. Um, but so, w- would you say that you know the way in which One Hot Minute has been kind of largely forgotten over the years? Do you think it's justified? I think so. I do because I'm I'm in that category as well. Where kind of of the people who don't bring it up or mention it, it's just like yeah, I've heard it. I've listened to you guys. I enjoy it, but doesn't have that replay value, doesn't have that much legacy. I don't really think, you know, someone hears One Hot Minute and it's like, oh, I'm going to learn guitar because that, right. that album really inspired me, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but you, but, I mean, you still would say, like, Aeroplane is a song that you still, you know, would list, do listen to frequently or no? Yeah, I mean, I if someone plays it, I'll, I'll be singing along for sure, but it's, I think Aeroplane's kind of, dragged down by being on one hot minute in the sense of i feel like if it was on another album then it would be even more popular of a song if that makes for sense. sure well when i uh, when i saw the chili peppers in 2006 2017 excuse me um was when was when john josh klinghoffer was on guitar and they played aeroplane live and oh, wow. to me that was and i've seen the chili peppers a bunch of times and that was one of the most special moments because to me that's aeroplane i think is really is definitely an underrated song. Oh, 100%. It is really, I mean, you know, we could, we could spend, could we spend some time dissecting it? Yes, yes, go for um, it. And I, obviously I talk about it in the previous segment, but um, it's just, you've got this, it is probably the one song on the album that is the, that has that signature Chili Pepper, like funk rock. The funk is the really funk what carries now. that song, for sure. Um, and, like, Navarro really holds his own. Like, he does a great job. I'm playing funk guitar and, and kind of letting Flea, you know, take the spotlight. 
But at the same time, you have Anthony's just, you know, pouring out his emotions, um, you know, mm-hmm. hinting about getting back, hinting about, or pouring out his emotions about his depression, but hinting about relapsing on heroin. And then yeah. you've got just so many things going on at the same time. And then randomly, Flea's, you know, daughter's, like, third grade class or whatever is, like, they're, like, singing, like, it's yeah. my aeroplane. And it's just... It all comes together quite nicely. Yeah. You, when you when you if someone kind of describes it to you like like that, oh, we're gonna have this, this, and this, and we're gonna piece it all together. And it's like I don't know, but when you hear the song, it it really does kind of oh yeah very cohesive for for sure. And and that's a song that like I understand I understand why they don't play any of those songs anymore. I get it. Like Kitas and Frusciante were going through really rough times, and that playing those songs brings back horrible. Of but course, I get it. I understand it. But I think Aeroplane is is I think. It, Playing that song, um, I think would would mean a lot for fans. Yeah, um, but I I get it. I'm not you know that's that's not a hill that I'm going to die on. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just happy for Shante's back with the band, and I got to see them. You know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's that's a big deal. And the recent stuff is really good too. I really. Oh yeah. What do you what do you think of the the recent stuff? The unlimited love and with the return of the dream canteen. It's it's capturing that you know, it's almost like putting me back in time. I feel like where. It feels like I'm in California or in the 90s or whatever, kind yeah. of just enjoying it, the music and, you know, feeling the vibe and all that stuff. But, yeah, really catchy, some good stuff, some filler, but um, overall, like, very strong return to And I think that's I, I think that's rare for a band at their age yeah. and, you know, that many years removed from their heyday to be still putting together music that people are talking about. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. It's where it's... It's not just that they come back kind of like a cash grab, you know, like this this music has artistic value. Yeah. This is stuff I'm going to be having on loop. Like, I really enjoy it. And then not even just for Chili Peppers fans, just, you know, rock fans in general, too. Like, yeah. You know, like the song's pretty solid. So. Well, that's what I, and that's what to me uh, sticks out as one. I always love looking at like just different artists on Spotify and seeing like their play, like how many plays of their, of their different songs. And because that kind of, puts it into a different context right you know it's like you see how many pop fans are listening to the chili peppers and the amount of plays they get is is unbelievable and i I just think it's really interesting for a band to have that unique of a sound and unique of a genre to appeal to so many people you know um and i know there's a lot of people that that aren't really into their music but i think everybody you know regardless of what they say can find a chili pepper song that they enjoy yeah there's no way that so you're not gonna find someone who hates them and doesn't like yeah. the song. I feel like, or yeah. unless they just want to be contrarian or want to be different or something. But yeah, yeah. And and even even if they don't like them and they're like, they'll be like, yeah, but Flea was really good. Yeah, Frusciante <laughs> is really good. Yeah, I think you know, I think Chad Smith is so underrated. Extremely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of songs were you know it's kind of he's kind of carrying a little bit. But yeah. And I do like how I feel like um, I feel like as the Chili Peppers career progresses um, I feel like he uh, becomes more indulgent you know mm-hmm. and, and, and and I love that yeah I mean I feel like it's just a natural progression too you know over time and you have so much music out and it's I feel like a natural progression where you become naturally indulgent and then yeah you have that whole arc but yeah I mean all the guys are super talented in the, in the for group. sure absolutely um and my last question is, uh, you know, this is this might be a, a difficult question to ask or to answer, right? But what is it about the Chili Peppers that you love? 
um the accessibility so when i listen to the music i feel like it's like two things at once where it's like i feel like it's so indie and so unique and like it's like catered towards me but it's so popular and so many people enjoy it where it's that's kind of like what i like about them is that i'm not alone in liking them i can kind of mention their music to other people and they know what i'm talking about and i mean stylistically and musically they're obviously i feel like objectively good and it's just so enjoyable to listen to and when it comes to like oh i want to pick up a guitar and learn something you know chili peppers is one of the top bands that comes to mind where it's like i need to go listen to them to kind of get some ideas and maybe play along here awesome all right matt well thank you so much for uh you know taking the time out yeah, of course doing this this was uh this was a blast this is a great great time here i mean appreciate the questions and i of course was honored to be here with you i mean you are probably the biggest chili peppers fan i know <laughs> uh you know all, all about their history and all that good stuff well yeah i, I was hoping that i wasn't coming off as professorial but it was it was yeah. one of those things like oh he said this i can talk about that thing you right know? yeah um so I, I, I appreciate you uh, humoring me with that, if if, uh, if you will. But yeah, this was awesome. And, so uh, let me ask you real quick. Yes, so where does One Hot Minute rank for you in, in their discography? I'd say number five. Oh, really? I'd say number five, yeah. I, I think it's the best non-Fruchante album by okay. a lot. Um, oh, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. Uh, I would say, so my top five, I'd say Blood Sugar is my favorite. Okay. Um, and then I'd say number two, probably Californication, three, by the way. And I'd say Stadium. Okay. And, then, and then One Hot Minute. I think One Hot Minute is, it's not an unbelievable album. It's not an amazing album, but it's a great album. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't like that it, the way that it's dismissed. And, you know, people that talk about the Chili Peppers' presence in the 90s um, talk about Blood Sugar and Californication and ignore One Hot Minute because right. uh, it's a key part of their history. You know? Yeah, definitely. It, even just like, because when you just see the, see the music on Spotify, where you're like, oh, yeah, the gap in years or whatever, but you when you have that context of what's going on in these guys' you know, personal yeah. lives, and you start listening to their lyrics more intently, you kind of see that bigger picture. And yeah, it's very important to that the '90s music scene, but also to that band specifically. For sure, for sure. And hopefully, maybe one day they will play more than just you know pee occasionally. So right uh, from what I'm in it. But anyways, yeah, Matt, thank you so much. This was awesome, and. Uh, and uh, I, I can't wait to hear uh, Willow Lane's uh, Yeah, of course. Pee. Yeah. Appreciate it, Doug. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Matt Prado for being an awesome guest. Hope you all have a great rest of your day, and that whatever the rest of it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Doug Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s Stan. Take care.